Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. The wealth management industry stands on the cusp of a transformative period. By 2030, it is projected to be worth a staggering $500 billion. Even more mind-boggling is the forecasted $90 trillion growth in liquid assets. This colossal shift, often referred to as the Great Wealth Transfer, is a clear and call to wealth managers across the globe, adapt or risk obsolescence. With a staggering $84 trillion expected to change hands by 2045, retaining clients will become an art in itself. Most heirs, about 87% of them, are anticipated to pivot away from their predecessors' financial advisors. A survey by Capgemini unveils the essence of this industry metamorphosis. As many as 70% of clients cite personalization as a pivotal factor in choosing their wealth management advisor. Furthermore, a significant 34% express readiness to relocate at least a fifth of their assets for a superior digital experience. An absence of digital adaptiveness could be a deal breaker for 37% of investors. Navigating these intricate waters is my guest for today, Steve Lockton. With a rich legacy of wealth management and wealth tech entrepreneurship, Steve offers a fresh and informed perspective. A vanguard for the fiduciary standard and an advocate for consumer education and financial services, Steve's extensive experience offers valuable insights into the evolving realm of wealth management. Steve is a principal of Advice Period and a co-founder of Vanilla, an estate advisory platform. Prior to co-founding Advice Period, Steve was chairman of Convergent Wealth Advisors, a company he founded in 1994. Steve helped pioneer the independent advisory industry building one of the largest independent RIAs in the nation. He has not only been an integral part of the rise of independent RIAs, but has also had a front row seat to the advent of the robo-advisor era as an early investor and advisor to a number of fintech firms, such as Betterment, Quovo, Wealthbox, or Advisor. Today, we delve into Steve's remarkable career journey, discuss the nuances of the wealth management industry, and explore the burgeoning role of AI in serving the modern investor. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up outside of D.C. in uh, Rockville, Maryland, oldest of four kids. Dad's a doctor, hardworking, always was home for dinner. And my mom was a teacher who, <laughs> let's just say, was grueling about school. I hated school, did whatever I had to do to get by. But sports and having fun were core features of my childhood. So, and I think probably the hard time I got from my mom pushed me to want to prove I could do things on my own and not need any of their support. Yeah. So when you say sports, were you super competitive? Like, did you compete at a high school or, or college level eventually? What sports were you into? I played soccer, wrestled, and played lacrosse. And so I didn't blossom until probably ninth grade. So I was the kid who I kept getting cut from baseball and whatever. Finally grew a little bit in junior high school and was half decent in sports. So played soccer all four years in high school and wrestled a couple of years, which was great because you don't have anybody to blame except yourself when you're wrestling. So it was a great sport to learn that, even though it's still a team sport. But lacrosse was my passion, but I, I didn't play in college. I tried to walk on at Maryland, but ended up having needing surgery right around walk-on time. And so that took care of my college potential lacrosse career. Yeah, Mid-Atlantic, Maryland, quite a few friends from there. It's a national sport there, lacrosse, lax boys. And it's a tremendous feeder into Wall Street. You know, a lot of folks in Manhattan work in, in the financial services industry, competed in lacrosse. And it's also a great feeder into some of the top schools, the colleges. And yeah, it's a tough and at times fairly violent sport. So but it seems to be, again, it's a national passion in Maryland. It's very, very, very popular there growing up. Yeah, my son is living out my dreams. He did exactly what you just said. He's a senior in college playing, and he's going to Wall Street next year. So panned out exactly as you explained. That's great. So do you feel like there's, you talk about a, a need for, I don't know if I want to call it validation, but it sounds like the dynamic with your mom and your upbringing, you wanted to prove something. And it sounds like, grades probably weren't the channel to do that. Is it fair to say that became a driver in terms of you wanting to prove through other metrics or other accomplishments that you were able to kind of make it and prove that it didn't necessarily have to go through the academic path? 
Should I be lying down for this portion of the therapy session? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a fair statement. So my folks, we grew up upper middle class. So a lot of the kids around us, I'll call it financial flexibility. But my mom was tough when it came to things like that. She's like, if you want to do something, go get a job. When it was time to go to spring break, senior year, and most of the other kids' parents were sending them, they're like, you want to go? Pay for it. So there was definitely a theme around doing your own things, paying for your own stuff. And then there was an expectation for high grades. I was bored, tremendously bored in school. And as one of my teachers said, she ran into my uh, sister-in-law many years later. And when my sister-in-law explained how she got to uh, D.C., my name came up, my English teacher said, well, how's he doing? He's either a millionaire or in jail. Which is it? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm not in jail. So I've been, but so yeah, it was doing things for myself and also proving that I didn't probably didn't need them. Like I wanted nothing from them so that I could be my own person. And my kids are a little bit like that too. That's awesome. And I can relate. Skipped a grade. I was going to skip the second grade. They decided to to put a hold on that just because the age gap was going to be too pronounced. But the issue with a lot of middle and high school is there's a leveling, right? Even if you are going to really good school. And I think in terms of like keeping your interests and look, if you're able to like really cruise through and you don't really have to, like I didn't really have to work that hard until probably my last year of high school and certainly then college, but when it started really ramping up, but it was easy. So boredom was part of my life too. So I relate to that. And it's hard for kids who are just have a ton of passions and interests and they need that speed and that constant stimulation if you're not getting that. And I know for a fact that even in college, I could not wait to get out in the real world. In other words, it's funny because I think I studied more during my MBA, which was a lot of fun. I befriended professors. I was this was later on in my life. But in college, it's not that I didn't study. It's just like I was so eager to get out because I just couldn't stand sitting there and didn't get the point. And I needed that stimulation to be out in the real world and doing real things. How did the transition to college happen for you? And how did that evolve for you in college? Were you still kind of restless and wanting to go out and build things? Yeah, you and I are kindred spirits. So I applied to two schools. One was Washington Jefferson College outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Actually, I applied to one school. I take it back. That was the only school because my dad went there and I got in. I'm like, great. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor, which I don't like blood. So I'm not sure why I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Did one semester there and it was brutal. Got good grades, but did not enjoy it at all. I came home for Christmas and said, I'm not going back there. And so I went to Maryland and Maryland was real simple back then. You had either certain grades and certain SATs and there was matrix. And so I got admitted on the spot went to Maryland, started working, and almost immediately went to work at Leg Mason for a guy I had interned for, who is still a very good friend and my mentor. And after one normal semester of college, switched to a program in the honors program where I could basically go to school two or three days a semester, and that's it. So first day, mid-semester, and last day, almost everything got mailed in. And I was an English major, so it was even easier for me because that was something that came naturally. So I worked all through college and could not wait to graduate. School was just something I had to do. Work was something I was tremendously interested in. So I had my Series 7 when I was 18. I think I got my 24 when I was 19 and just you know kept pushing and learning everything I could possibly learn there. Obviously, like Mason, big, obviously big, big presence in, in Maryland. Actually, I remember I dated someone whose parents lived literally across the street from Bill Miller and yeah, big presence. I mean, what were your memories of working there? And you said it was pretty formative. Well, I did everything from working in the wire room. Well, I started as a, doing scut work and then doing more administrative work, but learning. Then I ended up in the wire room learning back office. Then I made my way up to Baltimore working on the Muni Bond desk, which was a great education. The only challenge was I ate the same steak and cheese sandwich every day and hung out with the same people all the time. But it was great because the bond world is so different. You go to a bar after work, and you'd be trading bonds with a couple of the guys at the other firms. And so it was a tremendous learning experience and also just thrust me right into adulthood. I'm 
living by myself in a different city, working, taking care of school, meeting new people, hanging out with folks much older than I was and learning. So it definitely was a big influence on my, my growing up portion of my life as an adult. It is interesting how as much as technology has sort of slowly made its way, and so I came recently, I was still in a fixed income corporate credit world, and as much of, of it is starting to be electronified now, I mean, now getting close to about half of the volume in investment grade bonds is electronic. It is still so much of a community and a people business, much more so than equities. And so muni bonds is even more of that, right? And so when you want to get a certain type of trade done, when you're going to get something off your books, there really isn't any other way than interacting and being very connected with the ecosystem. So it's in that sense, it's an apprenticeship business because unless you cut your teeth at a very early age and you build those ties and you build this trust with other people and you build a reputation, it's a lot more complex. And I think to me, as a technologist and as a quant manager in that space, at times having pretty lofty goals around, hey, you know, ultimately machines are going to replace a lot of that. And yes, in some areas, like you could definitely streamline the workflows, you could streamline security selection, the trading execution, like all these things. But it is at the end of the day, a relationship business, like most businesses are. And I'm wondering that stay with you, because it sounds like that happened at an early stage in your career, those tenets of working in called the bond bros, right? It's, there's that a lot of bro-y culture in the bond world. Did that stay with you over the years as tenant? Yes and no. I mean, having a personality, I guess, and the, the ability to talk to people and make people laugh certainly was a attribute that I benefited from. But I left Leg Mason. I kind of had to make a decision when I graduated either to be on the bond desk or go do something else. And someone who I used to work with at Lake Mason talked me into going into the insurance business, the life insurance business, but kind of focused at the very high end, mostly estate planning, which obviously plays into what I did, you know, I've done long term and deferred comp and things of that nature, which also kind of plays into my career. So I left, I want to say 21, that business and ended up really in the trust and estate, insurance, financial services business and away from the bond business. But certainly learning it's who you know, not what you know, most of the time proved to be an important lesson. It absolutely is. And earlier this week, I was chatting with a founder, very, very young, early 20s, and you see, and, and he's already far along in having built his business. And you see that's the determining factor, right? What you said, it's, and I know it's, it sounds corny, it's the ability to essentially map out the connected dots and build those relationships and continue to do so is what sets apart people who are actually able to execute in business building. So talk to us about this early phase in your career where you get into this industry and what is the path there and how do you develop there as a professional? But where are the initial, because nothing that we've talked about here aside from wanting to prove yourself, obviously being competitive, right? No one goes and plays sports and there's just clearly a feeling of competitiveness in the way you come across, but nothing about entrepreneurship yet. So I'm trying to figure out what's the path there where you start developing ideas saying, hmm, at some point I'm going to want to build things and want to run my own business. Well, since you asked the question that way, I mean, th things that I did while I was at Leg Mason, I printed up Leg Mason t-shirts and sold them to everybody in the office and did great on that. I knew somebody whose dad had a business like that. So I would do that. I got into the water filter business while I was working there. So I was constantly looking for a way to do something in an edge and was clearly intrigued, not just by the financial opportunity, but really the opportunity to create and build something. When I worked in the insurance business, the guy I worked for, who's 15 years older than I am, so he's in the 70s now, and who is still works as hard as he did. I mean, office meeting started at 6 a.m. In the insurance business, you're your own boss. I mean, you may work with other people and be part of a group or an agency or whatever it is, but at the end of the day, it's your commissions that you take home. And he made it very, very clear. Any idiot can sell insurance. It's how you fund it. And here's the clients we go after and what we do. And I was petrified because I was a kid and I was going to see these big companies. I'm cold calling, get in. And 
I would bring him with me and I'd split the commissions 50-50. And he'd say all these things, you know, code section, this and that, and here's how you fund it. And I would write stuff down. And back then we didn't have the internet. So I'd pull out tax facts and go learn stuff. And I thought it was just amazing that you could build this recurring revenue stream, going out and getting to know people and knowing more than they do and helping them solve a problem. And that became really, aside from the t-shirts and things of that nature, the real first time that I was like, I could build a business that has no upside, unlimited upside, is recurring revenue and is built based on not just what you know, but who you can get in front of, which was a major differentiator. And that's probably where it all started. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, there's always that lemonade story, right? And it sounds like you had your own extracurricular activities. And actually, the lemonade stand story actually comes, I come across that pretty often. Be surprised at how many kids actually start their entrepreneurial journey, literally making lemonade and selling it in the neighborhood. But it sounds like you were already formulating along the way. So what happens over the course of these years when you're building your reputation, you're building your book of business in the insurance space? How does that evolve? Well, probably the biggest change happened when I got to know a guy named Marty Schwartzberg, who had worked at HUD and crafted the Section 8 housing laws. And he and his partners figured out how to capitalize on those. And so I got introduced to him and he was an insurance client. And one day he said, I need help. Like I've got, every time we do a deal with someone, I've got an account at Goldman and Merrill and Smith Barney, et cetera. You help me organize all this. And I basically created a family office for him while I still had my insurance business. So it wasn't do this or that, it was do this and that. And I basically set up the equivalent of a hedge fund structure. I said, I'll take 25% of everything I earn over the S&P 500. And aside from making his life simple in terms of keeping track of everything, I diversified. And so this is back in the late 80s. And so we had emerging markets and international when the typical US investor had US stocks and US bonds. And we did well. And so I got paid well, and he was happy. And it was, I didn't know what a family office was, but it was basically the foundation of a family office. And one day he said to me, you know, this is great. I could tell tons of my friends about this and they would sign up in two seconds for it. And that became the spark that kind of created my financial services career and ultimately took me out of the insurance business into the wealth advisory business. You know, what's really interesting as I have more and more of those conversations is how much very, very talented and successful people gloss over these transitional phases where they actually literally like it's a leap in performance and accomplishments. And so I do want to unpack so many things in what you just said, because it sounds to me like you're obviously really good in figuring out how to build a book of business, how to build relationships. Your initial chat with Marty about him getting to trust you, first of all, to trust you to do this. And then essentially what I hear here is you've got relationship abilities and the ability to build business and sell, but now we're talking about managing a portfolio. And now we're talking about essentially building a comprehensive allocation strategy that is going to outperform markets and indices. And that's a whole different skill set. So I'm super curious as to when, first of all, there's a notion of fiduciary responsibility and earning that. So it sounds like you had the relationship there and kudos to you for building that. But it's a big leap, right? Not having a track record, not being established in the business. So it sounds like there was a pain point. And to him, maybe it was just putting some order into his books and like structuring it. But then when you sat in that seat, how did you think about, all right, well, now I need to outperform? You're jogging my memory about so many different things that happened that contributed to this. So along the way, while I was in the insurance business, I got to know this guy named Bob Levy, who's now the chairman of the Cato Institute. And Bob one of the smartest people I've ever met, had started a company called CDA Investment Technology. And they did a product called Wiesenberger, which was kind of a predecessor to Morningstar. And they had manager database and modern portfolio theory tools, asset allocation, things of that nature. And I used to run with Bob almost every day at lunchtime. I'd drive out to his office, I'd run with him, take a shower at the gym there, and then go back to work. And while we ran, he would, I almost say lecture. I mean, we would talk about everything from religion to investments to philosophy. And he's just a 
a wealth of knowledge. And that information, so I was able to go to Bob and then Marvin McIntyre, who's the mentor I mentioned at Lake Mason, now he's at Morgan Stanley. And they coached me on like, here's how the institutions do it. Here's what to focus on. At the end of the day, I think it all comes down to, and hopefully you'll hear this theme throughout this integrity, obviously getting people to trust you and doing the right thing, but also humility to know you don't know anything and to follow what other people know or know they don't know. And so all I did was take the tools that Marvin and Bob kind of coached me to use and applied them with some form of discipline and it worked out just as it should. And so there's no, I can't overemphasize the impact of having great mentors. I mean, their names, as I've already mentioned, three that have made a gigantic impact in my life and career. Yeah, and it sounds also like just a an on a relentless appetite to learn and to grow and acquire different skills. But yeah, at the end of the day, and to your point, it ties into any business that is in essentially ensuring that people's funds are going to be handled properly and they're going to be put to work in exactly the way that you present it and that there's a duty of care. And again, going back to Latin, fiducia, trust, a very, very important pillar of, of this business. So essentially, you did outperform, right? And you got paid for it. So there's probably a change there in, in perspective in terms of what you can achieve because now you have essentially a portfolio of skills. Presumably, you have more like a better reputation even than you had before. And, and you've made money for someone, presumably also who had a lot of money to begin with. So that's a real track record. What do you do with that track record at that juncture? So that was late 80s. In 94, we decide there's a business to be had and start this business to provide, we didn't know the term family officers, to provide wealth advisory services, bringing institutional type services to high net worth individuals. And having learned from my insurance mentor, Alan Meltzer, that you could hear no from somebody with 2 million or no from somebody with 200 million. So why not spend your time in the 200 million people? I went after larger accounts. And the original plan was nothing more than let us take a look at your portfolio. We'll let you know if you're not properly diversified, which was just an asset allocation model and efficiency. So it was just math. And we're even willing to do an audit of your returns the last few years and show you how you would have done had you been properly diversified. And the other thing is fees were very, very high back then. So being able to reduce fees, which we were good at negotiating fees down with other providers and providing additional transparency and reporting, all this was right time, right place. And so there was a need. And I would say 99 times out of 100, you could walk into a client and add value immediately because, as I said, they were in U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds. And they were probably paying a lot in fees and they had no transparency. And so those were all problems we immediately identified and solved for them. What was the typical misallocation that you would see at the time? What were the common mistakes in terms of how portfolios were set up? Well, just think no international. I mean, it's probably the easiest example. So let's take out the last 10 years, which has been somewhat of an anomaly. But if you looked back then, historically, and I think IFA started in 1970 or 74, I think it's 1970. If you looked historically, IFA and the S&P had pretty similar returns, but they're about a 50% correlation. So just by virtue of splitting money between the two of them, you could reduce risk without giving up any return differential. And so including things like emerging markets, or international, or actually allocating a little bit to small cap instead of getting away from the old nifty 50 type portfolio, just happened to pay off at the right times. And then it would go, as we learn more, we would make more adjustments. And so would the market, the market has certainly evolved so that people are diversified like that and constantly come down. But you didn't have to be a genius. You just had to be disciplined to do this. So I wasn't any smarter than anybody else. I just was disciplined about diversifying the portfolios. So essentially, for those listeners who might not necessarily be familiar with it, at the time, there was a lot more of that diversifying free lunch available to people. And just that's alpha or any of those free lunches are always available when not enough people either have the discipline or access to the knowledge that you had at the time. So it sounds like there was a window, obviously, that 
we both know disappeared over time because the science made its way through generations of portfolio managers and financial services professionals and asset managers that then picked up on these things, which inevitably results in more correlation as people start implementing those strategies. But it sounds like there was a window there with just applying just the math, right? Yep. And just mean variance optimization, looking at the opportunity sets of assets that were available for people to invest in. And it's truly fascinating because we're talking also about a time when, aside from some big early names like the Tudor Jones of the world, the Soros's of the world on the hedge fund side, there wasn't much in the form of alternatives, right, at the time for folks with a significant amount of money to invest in, right? Correct. We were all active at the time. And I think you hit the key point, which was it was easier to generate I don't know if it was alpha, but it was called information alpha back then. Now, if you look at my portfolios, they're almost all passive, save some direct investments. So we got to ride that way very, very early. And it was so interesting going to see some of the managers. I remember one guy I went to see in Newport Beach who literally slept all day and was a chartist and did outperform the market tremendously year after year just by following trends. And it was just the information advantage that he had. You know, that stuff's all been squeezed out of the market. So the world has definitely changed in our industry. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a function of how many people have access to information and tools. And it's interesting because I think a lot of that is starting to seeping into privates. I mean, the private markets are becoming, on some level, much more transparent than they were even 10 years ago. When you look at the number of marketplaces, the data sets available, the approach of players, the use of AI, all these things, and not that the same tools and practices will work in private markets. What I guess what I'm trying to say is with technology, and that brings us back to the thread here, because we're talking about wealth tech and fintech, is the use of data, the use of technology to apply that data to make investment or allocation decisions inevitably results in some of those free lunches or anomalies to disappear. And over the time that this alpha is being withered away, players who are smart and timely and disciplined to your point are able to extract value, but also create value for their clients. I mean, something not to miss in this whole story is, I'm sure you did incredibly well during that time because you were clever about it, but your clients did really well, right? So in essence, you delivered for your clients and allow them to capture that extra return through just being disciplined and allocating funds in a disciplined manner. So now you have like a money management business and do you continuously grow it? Do you exit it? What was the evolution of that business? It's a uh, long and windy road. While doing that, you mentioned technology. So Marvin McIntyre, my mentor, his son, Jamie, backstory and that is when I called Marvin to go work for him as a between senior year of high school and college or maybe the year after, he said, we don't hire kids who haven't graduated college and we don't take on summer interns, but you can come work for me for free if you want. So I said, sure, when do I start? And so I went and worked for him for free and that launched that career. So his son, who's four years younger than I am, ended up, Marvin and I had become very friendly by then. And he said, you know, Jamie graduated college, he's sleeping until noon, smart kid, computer science. I don't know what to do. I said, well, he can come work for me for free if he wants. <laughs> so it worked for me. And then as we started this business, I Jamie became one of my partners. And so we would work on tech stuff. So we used Advent back then, but we didn't like the fact that Advent, this was a DOS-based version called TPP, we didn't like the way it looked. So we developed our own performance reporting software. And so that ultimately evolved. So while we're doing, and make no mistake, in no way did I ever think I was a, I or we were great investment managers. I was always afraid to become an investment manager because you had to live and die by your performance. So instead, we were service providers that leveraged technology and service and experience to make clients happy and feel like they got good value for their dollars. And to the extent we outperformed, which was obviously a goal, it was easy to demonstrate value. So we had two paths. We developed software. One version we sold to DLJ. Other versions allowed us to stay ahead of the curve. And so we were building, I'd call it light tech for ourselves, while also trying to continually enhance 
the service that we gave clients. So we stayed on the cutting edge of what was happening. So when it, we moved from just active management to alternatives, we met some folks that started one of the early fund to funds and the numbers were good. And we tested it with our own money a little bit. And then we said it was great. And so then we got into the alternative space and then private equity. And so all these things we got early tastes of and the clients benefited. And so I think if you look at the trajectory of the business that I've been in, which has been a constant kind of since the early 90s, it's how can we stay on the leading edge of what's going on from both a tech and an experience perspective for clients. Makes sense because ultimately, right, it, it's happened time and again, right? Peter Lynch, Bill Miller, Bill Gross. It's like, if you're betting on that hot hand, quote unquote, at some point, that streak comes to an end, right? And so it's very hard. It can last. If you have someone who's really, really good, world champion, world class, ultimately a Lewis Hamilton and Michael Jordan comes to a point where they can't win another championship. And, and if your entire business is based on that, it doesn't make it a generational play. And so investing in processes, investing in the relationship, and then eventually using technology to achieve that, to streamline that in a much more cost-efficient way, I think really that's the play, right? How you establish yourself over a much longer period of time. Because ultimately, when it comes to money management, you can't really sell performance because performance is going to vary over time. The constant is how you treat your client, what is the process by which you do this, and over much longer periods of time, what is the net impact that you have on their lives. But if you're just selling performance, you're just chasing the latest trend, right? And so, and that's something that I've always find is very important, even when you look at investing in an alternative or actually building one for yourself, it's like sell the process, sell the product, but don't sell the performance. I think that's very well said. And that you just encapsulated our philosophy. So I'm super curious as to the genesis of Betterment and your involvement with that. That's a part of the story that I'd love to hear. It's a rather simple story. So I sold the business. The same business has been sold a few times. I sold the business in 01 to a financial holding company that had a, one of the early internet banks. And that went fine, but I got bored of having someone else dictate what we were going to do. So I went in and resigned one day and the CEO said, well, if we sell the business and structure it in a way that benefits you, would you be interested? And so I said, sure. So it got sold to a public company, a bank out of California, which has pushed me out to the West. But I was miserable. Working for a large enterprise was absolutely horrible. And as one of my professors said, everything's great in an acquisition until there's a problem and then help arrives and it never leaves. And so we sold in May of 07. So we top ticked it. And 08 happens and help arrived. And so in 2010, I was looking for a way out, something to do that didn't violate my non-compete back to integrity. Even though I was in California, I could do whatever I wanted. I wanted to honor our agreement. And I came across Betterman because they were getting some press. And I just, that year I happened to have been number one in the nation and Barron's list. So I just messaged the John Stein and said, Hey, I'm top Barron's advisor. I'm interested in what you're doing. I think it could be revolutionary. I'd like to come see you. I went and had lunch with John and his co-founder and was very interested in it with very little diligence, did wrote the largest venture check I had ever written and invested in the company. And then immediately proceeded to hound them about having an institutional offering that I thought that Betterment could revolutionize the work for RIAs by minimizing the efforts around account opening and rebalancing and tax loss harvesting and reporting. And that's a whole different story about where it has or hasn't gone. But that was what got me into Betterment. And that led into all the other fintech stuff because I met the Quovo founders from that. And then I met the advisor founders and one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden I'm in the fintech world when I probably didn't deserve to be. So tell me a little bit about how much of a change it is to transition from building a successful franchise and really, and it sounds like you weren't one to take instructions and, and orders from the larger enterprise ultimately. So now you're investing and you're deploying capital 
to newer generations of entrepreneurs. You believe in the vision, and I certainly want to hear a little bit more about what really nailed it for you at Betterment and what, why you wrote that check, to your point, with very little diligence. But I also want to understand going from, again, business builder to investor, and it sounds like pretty actively involved investor, right? And I think all of us operators, I think when we start writing checks, we do have a tendency to be involved, right? Because there's a high level of care. And there's different philosophies on this. Some folks say, just write checks, stay away from it. It's a portfolio allocation game. Some others say, Naval yesterday tweeted, you have to be concentrated. You should invest in things that you believe you could also run or participate in running. I was wondering what your philosophy was there as you got more into the investor role. I never really saw myself as a investor. And certainly, again, back to confidence, never had the confidence that I could invest anyone else's money, although I've dragged a few people along with me as I've done some of these investments and knock on wood, being in the right place at the right time paid out for them and for me. But the side note is I didn't leave the company. I stayed, even though I invested in these. So I had an active role as a fintech investor slash advisor while I was still running the wealth advisory business. So despite my desire to get off the train as fast as I could, I stayed because I felt the loyalty to my clients. I enjoyed what I did and then ultimately left there and started up the, the last advisory business in 2013. So I kept doing it. But when I wrote checks, it was kind of, as you said, it was a business I believed in. I was highly concentrated in financial services technology. And it was stuff that I would use and where I could give input and where I felt like I had an information advantage because I was in the business. And the only other difference, which is also an Achilles heel, is I was always very early, which, as you know, if you run out of money when you're early, you're dead. But I was early in spotting trends and got lucky and early in the fintech wave, which panned out financially. But I was concentrated and I was involved as much as they wanted me to be involved, sometimes more than they wanted me to be involved. Yeah, no, it's a fine line that, that we have to tread. And it's hard also, like, presumably, when you invest personally, I think, again, a level of care, a level of interest, and you're doing so because you think this is the future, right? And you want to make sure that it's done in the best possible way. What really nailed it when you went into that meeting and met John? Obviously, people say like you invest in founders, you invest in teams. Was there more to it? Like what really convinced you there that you were able to move that quickly and say, this is the horse that I want to bet on? I think it was a combination of three things. One, they had a, they were working. It wasn't a prototype, but they had their MVP was a decent product. Two, John had a passion. I was talking to one of the folks who used to be there. It was one of the senior people last night. We were talking about John because I caught up with him earlier in the week. And his John used to say to everyone, we want people to come here where they can do their life's best work. And so he was incredibly passionate about cranking out an unbelievable product. And he was very passionate about taking care of the client. And that has been the foundation of my approach. My belief, and I've been outspoken about it, is our industry is extremely overpaid and for the most part takes care of itself. And the clients are second, sometimes third. And I believe the client should be first and back to the fiduciary term. We have a duty to make sure they get value and that we fulfill all their expectations or clarify what we can't fulfill. And John had that passion. So it was the tech, it was the personality. And the third thing was, I thought it was a hedge because either Robo at the time, and it created a big brouhaha, would disrupt the advisory business or it would enhance the advisory business by providing technology that could accelerate how advisors did their work. It turned out to kind of be neither. It created a new category, but I don't think it disrupted the advisory space the way everyone thought it would. Do you think in retrospect, like how do you look back now? It's a decade into it, roughly speaking. Obviously, Betterment never reached that escape velocity that venture investors are looking for, right? And I'm not, I'm saying venture investors, not investors for a reason. And so I think at some point there was probably, or there began to be a misalignment between the venture investors backing the business and the growth trajectory. Now, 
what they've accomplished over that decade is, to your point, category creation, it's been emulated. But again, it hasn't been the mass home run where you looked at the projections around the time when they were going through B and C rounds, the expectations were much loftier in retrospect. What do you attribute that to? Probably one of the most powerful forces in the world, probably right behind compound interest, which is inertia. And I think our industry is very, very slow to adapt. And there's a difference between, I think, the investment industry and the advisory industry. The investment industry is will adapt a little more rapidly. But the wealth advisory space tends to drive looking in the rearview mirror. And there was a lot of apprehension and mistrust, much to the consumer's dismay, I guess is the right word. I mean, the consumers could have been benefited tremendously and still can, but advisors didn't want to stop doing what they're doing. They didn't want to risk that the client would figure out that a machine can do it better than they can. And so they did everything they could to fight that trend. And I think that's what got in the way. And then the other, I'll call it hubris, because I think it was that bad. Betterment felt at the time that they could tell advisors what was right, and they knew better, and they didn't understand the space. And I think they would have been much better served had they brought someone in that really understood that space, because I think they would have been able to infiltrate it better, and that would have changed things in a significant way. That is very helpful. And I think Again, for people who are listening or trying to get into a space, and I think it's even more true in financial services because, again, it is a world that makes money on compound interest, but also in preserving intermediation rents. And when you have a contingent of professional or profession that, quite frankly, to your point earlier, makes a lot of money. I mean, the financial services sector globally is the most profitable sector, and the profession on average, gets paid more than other professions. And so it takes a very specific set of incentives for anyone in that industry to embrace technology or change unless it's either going to make them more money or protect their existing rent. And I think a lot of founders in fintech, wealth tech, but also other corners of financial services industry come into it oftentimes with great ideas, which in theory work really well. But when the rubber meets the road and you actually have to start moving actual accounts and relationships, this is where knowledge of the industry, back to where we're saying about the bond business, right? It's like you have trades today, still you have voice brokers broking trades. Let's say you're taking 50 million block or some off the run muni bond issue. It's going to be done over the phone and the commission that's taken out of it, it's pretty significant, right? And so those folks who are trading bonds day in, day out are going to put up a fight when someone comes in and says, well, I've got technology here that's going to squeeze your spread here. I mean, unless their job or their existence is threatened or they find something that allows them to do so in a much more cost-efficient way. So sometimes coming at it from the cost side is probably the most efficient way. But time and again, I see founders trying to, quote unquote, disrupt, especially in financial. And whenever I hear that, it almost always for me ends the conversation because I've been down that path and I've learned over the years that it's not about it disruption, it's about augmentation. And unless you can solve for augmentation, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly hard, no matter how brilliant the idea is. And in theory, might be the best concept for it to actually work in real life. To echo your point, and I haven't looked at the data lately, but US GDP, financial services on average was about 8% of US GDP. Over 30%, in some cases, 40% of US GDP profits was financial services. I mean, if that's not the great train robbery, what is? From the many to the few. It's a staggering amount. Yeah. and But it also shows the opportunity if done right. And there's a lot going on continuously, right? When you look at, again, well tech, payments, a lot of technologies out there that stands the potential to really improve. But again, to me, it's if you don't look at it from a cost reduction or efficiency perspective or augmentation perspective, it's always going to be an uphill battle. So as you're investing and being involved with those businesses, what else are you, what is in gestation at the time? Like what are the new things that you're thinking about and how does, because you're obviously through investing, you talk the you have the notion of hedge, which I really liked, right? Because it means you're looking at your career, your potential, and as a portfolio, right? And so you're building allocations 
that you think are relevant on a going forward basis. What else was starting to go in your portfolio as an entrepreneur? I mean, there's a lot of things. Most of it's fintech. A lot of it is disruptive fintech. So, you know, one of your other guests, Jason Wang, I'm an investor and altruist because I think there's an opportunity to disrupt. I mean, if you look at the incumbents in the custodial space, they're very happy with how things are. They would like things to continue to move smoothly because they have a oligopoly of sorts. But altruist has the potential because it's new tech and he has the right team and the right investors and the right approach. And Jason sees out to the future to possibly disrupt that space. So those are things that I find attractive. But then I've got other investments like Pathwater, which as I tease the guys, when they first came in to see me, I thought they were the dumbest people I'd ever met. And within 15 minutes, I thought they were geniuses. And I said, I'll take the rest of your round. And it all had to do with how they structured their arrangement with their bottler. And so, and they've continued to do very, very well. So most of it is things that I think will be disruptive. And I think if you're going to be a venture investor, which is almost everything I do is very, very early stage, it's going to be looking for things that have a big enough TAM and are disruptive. And obviously you got to have the right jockey. I mean, you can have a great idea and if the jockey's not right, forget it. How did you get back into the operating role? What was the the transition there in terms of starting new businesses? It's interesting because it depends on how you define the operating role. So as I mentioned, I never left the wealth advisory space. So in 2013, when I did leave Convergent Wealth Advisors and start advice period, I went with a couple of folks who I worked with and one of them handled the day-to-day and the other one was interested in management. And I just wanted to think about new ideas and service clients and come up with tax saving strategies. And so they provided me the freedom to do it. And it worked very, very well for us. And the business grew nicely. And the beautiful thing about it was I had the maturity, and I that's a gentle way of saying I was old, to know that if we just focus on the things we really believe in and move quickly and talk about how we're different than everyone else, which was a focus on the things we can control and not trying to outperform the markets or say, I've got a better asset allocation than someone else, or I can get you into deals other people can't. We knew there was a huge fulcrum with taxes and focused on taxes and, and how we could enhance returns by minimizing taxes. And so that kept me in the operating role from product design perspective, but not from a bill pay, HR, et cetera. I stayed somewhat involved. And if you look at vanilla, I made no bones about telling the VCs, you know, when Benrock came in, they said, well, why don't you want to be this CEO? I'm like, because I'm not the best guy for the job. I mean, let's hire a professional CEO. And it was the first thing we did post-funding the Series A. And we hired an unbelievable CEOs, exponentially better than I'd ever be in that role. And so I'm much more interested in being a creator and product designer and pushing us to do more while someone else is keeping me from getting too far out over my skis. So I don't know if I call myself the operator as much as I would say I'm more of a product guy. How do you pick the key lieutenants to actually enable and execute on your vision? You said first thing you guys did, obviously, human capital development, starting to think about the organization that's going to support a vision. Very and probably one of the most important decisions that you have to make as one of the key stakeholders. What are the things that you look for at Vanilla when you put someone in that seat? If you had Gene Farrell <laughs> and you asked him the same questions that you asked me, you'd probably get similarities in terms of growing up, although we had slightly different backgrounds. We're a month apart in age. But in Gene's last role, he was supposed to be the CEO when they went public. And then the existing CEO didn't want to give up that role. And so one of the things that I appreciated was he had a chip on his shoulder. And if you look at the history of people I've worked with, they've all, a lot of them who've been successful have had a bit of a chip on their shoulder. So it's clearly something that I look for. They want to prove themselves. And I probably appreciate it. You know, it's the old spot it, you got it. And so I probably see a little bit of me in them. Integrity and humility are probably, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest things. And for me, it's humility is just always wondering how I can make it better. What am I doing wrong? So I think it's worrying about 
what we're not doing as well as what we may be doing that we can do better and, and risk management. And so looking for the right people, but more than anything, it's been gut and luck and moving on when you don't have the right people and which you never do quickly enough. But that has been a, at least historically something that we have done. How is it starting or being part and being a key enabler of a business at that stage in your career versus, let's say, you got a team of 25-year-olds who spent a little bit of time working, they come up with this idea or they observe some key inefficiency at a company that they're working with or at and decide, all right, we're going to team up and we're going to build this and we're going to go out and build a business. And they're at a very, very different stage in their careers in terms of the networks, in terms of, let's face it, money in the bank, unless they came from a very privileged background. Contrast that with someone who, by the time when you're putting the foundation in place for a vanilla, you're at a completely different stage in your life, right? And so whether it's the ability to pick up the phone and call on key customers, key relationships, backers, folks to work with or for you. Can you help us contrast that? And if, I was wondering if you also have some words of wisdom for, because you also invest, presumably in younger teams, less experienced teams, contrast your journey or most recent journey as an entrepreneur or as a founder with someone who's just getting started. I think you've heard the theme of mentors and Andy Jassy at Amazon has a saying, which we get, which gets repeated at Vanilla often, which is there's no compression algorithm for experience. And I think tapping into the mentors that I had were far more experienced that are my age or even a little bit younger when I was tapping into their knowledge. It's probably the best advice I could give someone young is find somebody that's been in the trenches and has the battle scars to give them good advice on how to avoid getting those battle scars. Today, I think a couple things are true. Neither Gene nor I are excitable about things not going well and where we might want to pivot because there's always something to change. So, you know, it's never the end of the world. Nothing's going to kill us. We're just going to keep doing what we do and believe in, and it's all about the process and execution. I think part of it is being able to correspond with the board members in a more intelligent way. So there's immediate credibility as opposed to they're corralling a, some younger folks that, as I said, just don't have the experience. They may be super smart, but they don't have the experience. And so, and finding, I would always encourage humility for younger folks. There's youth is wasted on the young, as they say. There's an advantage to having lived through this stuff. And so I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for me is we've seen a lot and we know who to go to and what to work and when to say no and not feeling like you got to say yes to every deal. And as you said, it's enhanced our ability to call. I mean, Vanguard is an investor and a client. And so being able to go to institutions like that and have them as early enterprise deals creates tremendous credibility, helps hone the product. And obviously there's a significant amount of opportunity that comes with those. So I think there's a very big difference between what I know now and what I knew 30 years ago. And as an investor, if you were going to back a team, would you lean towards one or the other, knowing what you just said? In other words, do you think, again, it's a matter of portfolio allocation where as an early stage investor, you should have younger, more inexperienced teams, but that might be onto something that to your point earlier, where the stakes are really big. And if assuming they pull it off, that option might be worth a lot of money versus people who've actually done it, who know. And, and I guess it's also very conditional on the industry that they're in, right? Yep. I, it's idea first. I mean, it's got to be something that is disruptive or just has tremendous opportunity. So it's size of the opportunity, pace of the opportunity, the traditional other barriers to entry, and then obviously the team. So I don't think it's as much age dependent. I mean, we, I looked at something yesterday I'm interested in that the founder is probably 50 years old. And I probably, if given enough opportunity, would bet on more 50-year-olds than I would on 30-year-olds or 25-year-olds. Because of the experience, there just aren't as many out starting businesses because they're either steeped in their career or they don't want the hassle at that stage of their life with doing a startup. It's a lot of work. Yep. So the last thing I'd love to hear your thoughts are we've moved. I think there's a refinement and 
we've alluded to it throughout the conversation around, especially in the space that you're in, as opposed to thinking we're going to replace, transform. We talked about inertia. We talked about the industry specifically being one that evolves as opposed to disrupts itself or is disrupted from the outside. You talk a lot about empowering, and Jason and Altruist is the same. When you talk about disruption, I mean, he really is bringing a fully vertically integrated model to empower RIAs and sometimes RIAs that wouldn't otherwise have access to this infrastructure easily to be able to do their work and ultimately at the end help their own clients, right? He's got that mission statement always plastered at the top. But as someone who's been in the wealth management industry and now straddles both the technology enablement of that industry and the industry itself, on a going forward basis, right, we're going through right now a cycle where there's a lot of excitement around artificial intelligence. Not all of it is new, but certainly there's capabilities in terms of computing power and the sophistication of or the refinement of models that now can be trained and also the data that is now available to train them. And the other day I was at the airport, very early flight, and you know, CNBC at a segment, is AI going to replace investment advisors? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think that means for your world? As someone who's been in that world for a long time, and given all the things that we talked about today, what do you think of the potential AI and what role can it play in the space? I get this question a lot, and my, I always respond with over what period of time, because as an industry, both consumers and advisors are very slow to change, evidenced by the discussion we had about robo. Most of the financial services industry does not require AI, but here's where I think AI ultimately can help. Two primary areas, there's lots, but one is just natural language discussions with clients and being able to absorb data. So theoretically, 10 years from now, or some point before or after that, my biofeedback will be available to the AI that I've signed up with to understand how I react to seeing my financial statement in up markets and down markets, things that, that get me excited or upset. It will be able to vet my emotional stability around, let's say, exuberant spending or being overly conservative or what matters to me. And I think it will do it better than humans. And it will be do it in a truly unemotional way. And robots are always on, which is fantastic. So there's a human component, which I don't know how we escape from. You get into a 2008 scenario, and not only are we stressing about our own businesses and our own portfolios, but we have to talk to every single client and absorb all of their negative experiences. And I think it's overwhelming at times, whereas AI could handle all of them simultaneously without any problem and without injecting their own bias, which clearly is a problem, I think, in the industry. There's definitely advisor bias that influences portfolios. So that's where I think AI will really play a role. If traditional free markets stay the way they are, then generally modern portfolio theory or whatever the next version of it will be much more rules-based and won't require AI. It will just require rules. And that's where I don't think we really need a lot of AI. And then the last place is, I always say that the intersection of accessibility and digestibility of information will really influence success of products in financial services. And so AI or ML can figure out how people react to the presentation of data and colors, fonts, what's given when, for how long. And that's another place I think AI can certainly help. And there's a lot of information to consume. If we make it easy to digest and easy to access, then it will make this process much easier. The one thing I don't think we have to worry about is the homogenization of advice because we're still humans and humans, particularly Americans, have some unreasonable belief that they're entitled to some unique set of performance. And so I think they're always going to deviate from what's academically correct, which will create opportunity. Oh, that's a great statement. And I'm glad I asked that question because I wanted to hear it for someone who actually has a longer window of having looked at this industry 
And I'll close on this. There's something that you said in reference to AI that's very different from many folks I've spoken to, is you see potential in AI helping understand how clients will react to information or react to a situation. I've heard people talk about how it's going to create virtual advisors. I heard that it's going to implement those rules that you mentioned. And you actually stayed away from that. You said rules really, it's a rules engine is just a rules engine, right? Yep. But you did talk about AI really helping understand how a certain person is going to react to the information set at a given point in time. So I thought that was very unique. And it's true that at the end of the day, being that we're human, and that's not going to change, and that we're fundamentally driven by emotions, actually the ability to understand how the information is going to be interpreted to better serve the client, not to take advantage of them. I just want to stress that because it's very, very important to better serve them and respond. Like in a period of stress, for example, you talked about 08 and understanding exactly how to best convey information to a client at a time of turmoil, market turmoil, similarly when things are really great. So I thought that was very unique and thank you for that because I think it brings a different perspective and one certainly that I have not heard so far. Steve, it's been a pleasure to hearing about your journey. I've certainly learned a lot and it's also great to talk to someone who's just straddled so many things in their career at this point and I think you have so much to continue to contribute. So I look forward to seeing what you're continuing to build and staying in touch. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. I enjoyed it very much. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice. 